The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. In 1972, there was an Olympic gold basketball game between the United States of America and the Soviet Union. The U.S. had never lost an Olympic basketball game prior to this, evidently. And the Soviet Union was up most of the game. Even with 10 minutes to play, they were up by 10 points, 38 to 28. Not a very high-scoring affair. And with less than 40 seconds left, the U.S. hit a jumper to pull within one point of the Soviet Union. With a few seconds left, the U.S. stole the ball and and charged down the court to go in for a layup. And the guy who, who went to shoot was fouled. And he went to the line and hit two of the most clutch free throws in all of American history to put the U.S. up by one point. The Soviet Union threw in the pass with one second to go. They hurled up a final plea, and it missed. And the U.S. players began to celebrate. They began to rejoice. This amazing comeback ended in victory. If you would have turned off the TV at that point, you would have a great night of celebration. But for those of you who are familiar with the story, know that it had a twist to it. After the Americans came out and celebrated their victory, Great Britain's Secretary General of the International Amateur Basketball Federation, who had no authority in the Olympic Games at all, went to the refs and insisted that they put three seconds back on the clock because the Soviet Union was trying to call a timeout. A timeout that they were not allowed to actually call, I found out in reading. And so the rest, in order to try to save the controversy and save face, decided to put three seconds back on the clock, thinking to themselves, there is no way the Soviet Union will win this game. It is impossible. It is a long shot. And so the the Soviet players made their game plan. They came out. With three seconds left, there was a launch from the baseline in which the player stepped on the baseline, which is illegal also, and the Soviet player caught the ball, shot the ball, and it went in. And the U.S. lost the game. If those three seconds hadn't been added on, it would have been the end of an amazing story. Jonah chapter 4 kind of reads like those last three seconds that are added on. If you would, please turn to Jonah chapter 4. It's page 775 in the Red Bible and page 1104 in the Children's Bible. Let me explain why the last chapter of Jonah feels like those last three additional seconds. Remember in Jonah chapter 1, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah flees away from God. He flees to Joppa and then takes a ship to Tarshish, the other side of the world from Nineveh. God comes to Jonah. He sends a storm upon Jonah. Jonah is cast overboard at the bottom of the ocean. When Jonah is about to die, he cries out to God. God sends a fish and miraculously saves Jonah. In the belly of the fish in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is a changed man. He is a repentant man. He longs for the intimacy with God. Jonah declares salvation belongs to the Lord. 
And then we get to chapter 3, verse 1. And God recommissions Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes to the biggest, baddest, craziest city in the world on this impossible mission with this big God. And he tells the Ninevites to repent. The second half of chapter 3, which we discussed last week, something unexpected happens. The greatest revival in human history. Nineveh repents. The king of all the people fear God's fierce anger. He calls out for God's undeserved mercy. They obey God's holy commands, giving up their violence, and God relents of his anger. Jonah chapter 3 ends with this verse. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God returned to the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Mission accomplished. What a great way to end the story. God transformed Jonah and then through transform Jonah, transformed the city. What a great way to end the the story. But then comes Jonah chapter 4. And when we look at Jonah chapter 4 and we take it at more of a overview level, we might say, why in the world is chapter 4 in the Bible? Why in the world did God not just end the story at the end of chapter 3? And what we're going to see is that chapter 4 challenges us to apply Jonah chapter 1 through 3. Apart from chapter 4 of Jonah, Jonah 1 through 3 is merely just a good story. But Jonah chapter 4 presses it into our hearts and into our lives. So let's read together Jonah chapter 4. I'll actually start in 310 just so we can remember the context as we read Jonah chapter 4. Let's start in Jonah 3 verse 10. And then we'll read all the way through Jonah 4 11. Jonah 310. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God. And merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word, we know that it is infallible, that it is inerrant, that all of it is profitable for us. And so, Lord, show us why Jonah chapter 4 is so important for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, as we read Jonah chapter 4, we might think to ourselves, what a rotten way to end a terrific story. But today we'll see again that Jonah chapter 4 is critical to the book as a whole. And I want to look at three parts. I want to look at Jonah's anger, God's love, and our response. First, let's look at Jonah's anger. How angry was Jonah? Really, how angry was Jonah? Well, we see a couple things here. First, we see that Jonah was so angry that he called what God did evil. In verse 1, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. This could also be translated, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. And he was angry. Jonah was so angry that he called what God did evil. Jonah was also so angry that he wished to die. Verse 3, he says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Verse 8, again, Jonah asked God that he might die. and says, it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah was so angry that he called what God did evil, that he wished to die. And not only that, he wished to see others die. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah went out the city and sat looking at it like it was going to be a fireworks show waiting for the judgment of God to come on Nineveh. And Jonah was angry. Now we look at this passage and may wonder, why was Jonah so angry? And the simple answer is this, that God's plan was not Jonah's plan. You see, Jonah's plan was much different. Jonah's plan would be that he would go to Nineveh, this great rival city, this ruthless, violent city, that he would proclaim the judgment of God, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. And then Nineveh would be destroyed. God's judgment would come upon it, and Jonah would go home to Israel and say, I have good news. Our enemies have been destroyed. We no longer have to worry about the Ninevites. God brought his judgment upon them. It makes sense, doesn't it? But that was Jonah's plan and not God's plan. And so Jonah is angry. He recites God's plan here, verse 2. Such an ironic prayer. But this is what he prayed. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You know, anger is not always a bad thing. Sometimes there is a righteous anger when we get angry over the things God gets angry over. Things like injustice, death, famine. But if we are honest with ourselves and if we are honest with God, most of the time our anger is not a righteous anger. We're not angry because God is angry. We're actually angry because God's plan is different than our plan. Let me give you an example of this from my own life. After college, I went on staff with Young Life in Columbia, Missouri for two years, and they were very profitable years. After that, I decided to go into sales, and so Trish and I moved up to Wisconsin, another region, not northeast Wisconsin, and I was bad at it, and I hated it, and so I gave it up. At about that time, a position opened for Young Life in that area, and I thought, this is it. This is why God has moved us to this part of Wisconsin, that I could come and help this area reach out to the teens. And so I applied for the position, and during the application process, I found out that there was one other applicant, and it was an applicant that I actually knew. And I don't want to bore you with all the details, but just my my resume, I'm just telling this for the sake of the story, my resume was far better than his, far better than his, okay? He was a fresh kid out of college. I discipled. He was, I don't think he was fit for ministry. I had just been to an area and had done well, and so I think it's a shoe-in. I have this job. This is why God moved us up here, that I could apply for this job, get this job. I'm going to get it. You know what's going to happen, don't you? (laughs) Well, I still remember sitting on my bed, picking up the phone and talking to the chair of that committee. As he told me, they gave the job to the other guy. And I remember saying to him, you made a mistake. You made a mistake. I was so angry. I was so mad. I thought this was God's plan. It wasn't God's plan. It was, it was my plan. And as I processed it, even in preparing for this sermon, I thought, you know, at that time, I, I, I considered myself to be so angry at that committee. But the reality is, I was angry at God. I know God controls all things. He controls the committee members. Nothing is outside of his control. This was God's plan for my life. It wasn't my plan, but it was God's plan, and I was angry for days, for weeks, for months. And everyone around me suffered the consequences of my irritability. You know, you may be labeled as an angry person, or you may see yourself as a person who is Easy, easily frustrated at very small, minute things? Could it be that you are actually angry at God, but you are too theologically sound to say it? Could it be that you are angry because God's plan is far different than your plan? Could it be that angry because you wanted a different job? You thought that marriage would look differently. You wanted to make the team. You thought life would be far different than it is. And so you're angry because your plan is not God's plan. And you are angry at God. You know, many times this overflows onto the people around us. I've shared this illustration before. But our hearts are like glasses that are filled to the brim. 
And if you took one glass full of water and one glass full of coffee, when you bump it, whatever spills over is what is inside your heart. And so if you overflow with this constant underlying frustration and anger, maybe it is that you are angry with God. And can you just be honest and confess it like Jonah? So here's Jonah. Jonah is angry. He's angry with God. And God comes to him and he says this. He asks this question. Do you do well to be angry? What a simple, loving response from God. Do you do well to be angry with the God of the universe who knows all things, who is gracious and compassionate and loving? Do you do well to be angry with a God that you cannot control like a domesticated animal? Do you do well to be angry at him and spend your life in bitterness and resentment? Or is there another way to live your life? And part of unfolding Jonah 4 will show us and call us to trusting, not in our own plan, but in God's plan and rejoicing in it. And so we see Jonah's anger with God. Next, we see God's love. So many people that are familiar with the Old Testament will tell me that they don't like the Old Testament. They don't like the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament seems harsh and mean and cruel and vindictive. He always seems angry, right? Well, what do the Old Testament people say about the Old Testament God? That's probably important, isn't it? Let's see how Jonah perceived that Old Testament God. Look right here. He says, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In this passage, Jonah is quoting from Exodus. And this passage is also quoted in Nehemiah and in the Psalms. And passages like this are quoted throughout the scriptures in which the people of the Old Testament knew God as a loving God, abounding in love. When you look at the Old Testament, so many times we read one verse where we see disobedience. and the next verse, we see the judgment of God. But so many times between those verses are decades, are generations. The prophets come because they want to warn the people to repent and turn back to God. And hundreds of years go by in which they're calling the people to repentance. And after hundreds of years, and not till that point, after many generations, God sends the Assyrians, he sends the Babylonians in order to woo his people back to himself. You see, we have a patient and loving God. And the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. We see here even God's loving grace towards Jonah. I mean, when Jonah was first called, he was this self-entitled, racist, elitist man. God worked on Jonah through the storm, through through the bottom of the ocean, through the belly of the fish. God gave him a second chance. He called him to this great mission. He went to Nineveh and hundreds of thousands of people repented and trusted in the Lord. This is every prophet's dream. And then we get to Jonah chapter 4, and he complains. He falls back into the same sin, the sin of racism, of prejudice, of self-entitlement. Jonah is mad at God. He calls what God does evil. He complains about his love and mercy. Jonah is acting like a spoiled brat. 
You know, this would be like a kid on Christmas Eve or Christmas night saying, I didn't get anything good today, right? If you were God, what would you have done with Jonah? Would you have struck him dead? At the very least, would you have dismissed him and said, you know what, I give up. You are hopeless. We went through this amazing journey, and this is how you respond? But you see, we have a God of steadfast love, slow to anger, and relenting from disaster. Jonah chapter 4 contrasts the heart of God and the heart of Jonah. But it also contrasts the heart of God and the heart of mankind. We have a God who is so much more merciful than us, so much more slow to anger than us, so much more abounding in steadfast love than us, a God who relents from disaster. Is this the God that you know? Do you know this God who is a loving God? There's a story of a medieval monk who announced that he would be preaching the next Sunday evening service, and the topic of the sermon was going to be the love of God. And so the people gathered at the church, and nightfall came, and the monk came in, and he lit a candle. And he took the candle and carried it to the crucifix, first illuminating the crown of thorns, then illuminating a wounded hand, and then another hand, and then feet, and then illuminating the spear mark in his side. And then the monk blew out the candle and left the building. If you want to know how much God loves you, all you have to do is look at your Savior. All you have to do is look to the cross where God sent his own son to die for spoiled brats like you and me. I mean, think about it. How much has God poured out his grace and mercy and love upon us? He has given us such great gifts like our daily food, our daily water. He's given us a house to live in, sports to play, sunshine to enjoy, beaches to go to. And the list goes on and 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 on of all the blessings that God gives to us each and every day. And yet we turn to him and say, God, why don't I have a little bit more money? God, why is it my life easier? God, why didn't I get that job? God, why didn't I make this team? You see, do you see what lives in Jonah lives each and every one of us? We take his grace for granted. And we complain to God. And yet God, who is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, sends his son, Jesus Christ, to take on our guilt, to take on our sin, to take on our entitlement, to take on our racism, to take on our prejudice, to take on all of our sin, and to pay the penalty in full in order that God could act towards us, not with judgment and justice, but love. This is the God we serve. This is the God we worship. A God that is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster.
So we see Jonah's anger. We see God's love. And finally, let's look at our response. In verse 6, we read, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah wasn't just happy about the plant. He was exceedingly glad. If you look at the NIV, it says he was very happy. Do you know how many times this word comes up in the book of Jonah? This this word for being happy, for being joyful, for being glad, for being exceedingly happy. Do you know how many times it comes up? Just once. Right here. Forget the fact that God saved the sailors. Forget the fact that the grace of God saved hundreds and thousands of Ninevites. Jonah is happy because he has a leaf to shade him. The Lord exposes Jonah's misarranged priorities. And he does so even more so in the last two verses. You know, it's always interesting when a book ends with a question. And so the Lord asks this question, verse 10. Look with me if you would. It says, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God is asking Jonah this question. Are not 120,000 souls more important than the life of a plant? Are not 120 more souls so much more important than your own comfort? Should you not be more angry that hundreds and thousands of people are perishing than you are that a single plant dies overnight? The book of Jonah ends with a question because God demands a response from his readers. The first readers being the Israelites, but The readers also being us today. This is such a poignant question for us. And I wish I could not relate to Jonah. You know, the reality is when you look at Jonah and you see that he's angry that God doesn't destroy these people. I don't necessarily connect with that so much. But what I do connect with is my apathy towards those who are perishing. My indifference towards those that do not know the grace and mercy of God. You know, as we look at this, as we see Jonah's exceeding joy in this plant, the question for us is this, where do you find your exceeding joy? Is it in fitness? Is it in kids? Is it in travel? Is it in weather? Where are you exceedingly joyful? This past week, Chad and I were catching up after he was on vacation, and we're just asking questions, seeing how life is going. And, and Chad asked me, how's the football team doing? I, I play on this rec league football team, and I just smart, start smiling from ear to ear. And I say something along the lines of, boy, you sure do know how to make a girl smile, right? Because it's something that I, I love doing, and I enjoy doing it. There is nothing wrong with that response. There is nothing wrong with taking joy in your children, in a vacation, in your house. There is nothing wrong with taking joy in any of those things. As a matter of fact, you glorify God when you take joy in them. But what they do is they give us a barometer. They show us, do you have more joy in a plant 
in a house, in football? Or do you have more joy in the salvation of men and women? We don't need to lessen our joy in the good gifts of God. But we must elevate our joy in the greatest gift of God. The salvation of men and women. Do me a favor, turn to Luke chapter 15. If you are in the Red Bible, it's page 874. If you're in the Kids Bible, it's page 1277. If you're on a tablet, I hope you can find it. Turn to Luke 15, page 874 in the Red Bible, page 1277 in the Kids Bible. I'm going to read a good portion of this because this is an illustration of what's being communicated in Jonah chapter 4. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. You can replace tax collectors with Ninevites, with pagans, with Bears fans, whatever you want to do, all right? Come on. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious folks, grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he called together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now listen closely. Verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know, this doesn't seem quite right. Shouldn't they be worshiping God and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isn't that their job? Isn't that what they should be doing? And yet all of heaven pauses to rejoice in the salvation of one soul. Do you know this is how heaven thinks of you? This is how heaven rejoices over you and your salvation. It goes on, verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the two sons, also called the prodigal son, in which a wayward son goes away from home. He comes back. The father throws a party. The older brother is jealous. And in verse 32, the father says, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. All of Luke chapter 15 is declaring us the joy that God has over one person, over one soul who comes into a relationship with him. We need to learn the lesson from Jonah. That there is a joy greater than a lot of the gifts that God gives to us. It's the joy of salvation. We need not feel guilty about having joy in God's good gifts, but we must elevate the joy and the greatest gift of God, the salvation of men. Now, 
I think if you were honest and if I was honest, I would tell you that when I first came to know Christ, I had this great joy in my salvation. I was, I was happy. I was joyful all the time, thinking of all these blessings that God has given to me. But over the course of time, I've grown complacent towards them. I've taken them for granted. And maybe you are here, maybe you think the same way. And the question is, what do we do in that situation? How do we muster the joy? Well, the reality is we can do nothing. All we can do is go to God, repent to God, and tell him to give it to us. We see Jonah doing this, or Jonah needing to do it. We see David doing it in the Psalms. In Psalm 51, David says this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He's asking God to do this because he knows he can't do it himself. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. David acknowledges something that we have seen throughout scripture, which is that every one of us is an evangelist for the thing we most unashamedly cherish. Every one of us is an evangelist for the thing that we have a great joy in. Do you cherish this buried treasure? Do you cherish this pearl of great price? If not, cry out to God. Ask him, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You know, I started by saying that Jonah ends on a downer, and it kind of does. In many ways, if it ended at chapter 3, it would be a much better story. Because chapter 4 ends with Jonah whining and complaining to God. And so why is Jonah chapter 4 written? Let me give you an illustration, and hopefully we can connect it, okay? Uh, Long time ago, I don't know if I was college or just out of college, I uh, needed a refrigerator. And so I found a used refrigerator, maybe on Craigslist or newspaper, I don't know, And uh, I went to go pick it up, and the man said, yep, it works great. It's a great refrigerator. And he said, here, you can try it out. So I opened the doors, and I could feel the cool air come out of the fridge and the cool air come out of the freezer, and I thought, great, I'll take it. And so we loaded it into the back of my truck, and I took it home, and I went home, and I plugged it in, and I heard it start to go. I went inside, didn't think anything of it. And when I came out later to put my food into it, I noticed that the refrigerator was warm. That, uh, that there was no cold air, and I checked the dials, and everything was right. The freezer wasn't freezing over. There was something wrong with the refrigerator. At first, I was angry, thinking that, you know, this guy got me, but I was there. I tested it. It was, it was good. So I went online, and I did some research, and I found out that if you move a refrigerator, and maybe a freezer as well, I'm not sure, but once you lay it down in the back of the bed, when you stand it back up, you need to wait about 24 hours to plug it in because the oil needs to filter down so that the refrigerator can be cooled. And so I plugged it in not knowing that and broke my refrigerator. And so now if you say, hey, I'm going to buy a refrigerator, I will say, you may or may not know this, but wait 24 hours before you plug it in because the oil needs to drain down so that you don't overheat the refrigerator. I learned from my mistake and I wanted to share it with others. Okay, how does this connect? All right, we'll get there. Jonah chapter four may be a downer, but I think there's an unwritten chapter of Jonah that we don't see that has a much happier ending. You see, much of the Old Testament scriptures is written because people went through experiences. They saw things firsthand and they wrote it down. For example, 
Moses, he went through the Exodus, and so he could write out about the Exodus because he was there. He had experienced it. He was an eyewitness. This happens throughout a lot of the Old Testament with prophets and, and other places, and there's some exceptions, but for the most part, for the most part, there are eyewitnesses to historical events that write down the scriptures. And so as we look at the book of Jonah, the question I'm left with is who was an eyewitness to the story of Jonah? Who was an eyewitness to the Lord commissioning Jonah the first time? Who was an eyewitness to Jonah riding in the boat? Who was an eyewitness to Jonah in the bottom of the ocean crying out to God? Who was an eyewitness to Jonah inside the belly of the fish? Who was an eyewitness to Jonah going back into Nineveh, proclaiming repentance and the city turning to God? Who was an eyewitness of Jonah sitting outside of the city, complaining to God, having a leaf put over his head, hearing the questions of God? Who was the witness to all of those things? It was Jonah. Jonah is the only person besides God, who witnessed all of those things. And the only reason we could have this story is if Jonah went back to Israel and told this story. You see, I lived through an experience with the refrigerator, and so I tell and warn other people, don't do the same thing I did. Jonah wrote this story, and Jonah wrote chapter 4 to warn the Israelites, to say, look at who I was. Look how self focused I was. Look how selfish I was. Look how racist I was. But look at how gracious and merciful and loving God is. This story ends with a question because it calls all of us to give an answer. What do we have an exceeding joy in? You know, we read through Jonah. Chapters 1 through 3 are a great story, but Jonah chapter 4 challenges us to the core. Do you love this city? Do you love your neighbors? Do you love your coworkers? Do you long for their salvation? This is what Jonah 4 is calling us to. To have the heart of God that loves the lost, that is compassionate and rejoices in their salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, we come confessing that we often do not have this burden for the lost that you do, the joy of their salvation, the joy of even our salvation, God. And so we cry out to you like David, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. God, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know that salvation, that they will receive it for the first time today and that they would be overjoyed by a God who is loving and compassionate, slow to anger and relenting from his justice. Lord God, as we turn to the Lord's Supper, remind us of the cost of your great love for us, the cost of your own son.